Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. has started a study verse by verse in the book of the prophet Hosea. Today is the first one, and we invite you to be part of this journey with us. I'm excited to start this series for the first time here with you guys, because now we're going to be able to be aligned with our Spanish service and our English service. We kind of jumped in in the book of Colossians a couple weeks ago, but now we're starting it together, and check it out, you guys are the first uh, ones that, that get to listen to uh, this wonderful uh, words from Hosea's mouth and from God's mouth in chapter 1. And so if you do have your Bible, why don't you open it up to the book of Hosea? It's somewhere towards the back of the Old Testament. And don't be ashamed if you need to look at the table of contents. Or don't be ashamed to just open up your app and find it. It's okay. But after we've been studying these for a while, you should be able to identify them fairly quickly. So we're going to get into this wonderful series, this wonderful book, this wonderful minor prophet. And I have to realize that in the context that we're in right now, we may be at different levels biblically as far as knowledge goes of, of our understanding. Where, where are books in the Bible? What do these books mean? What do I mean when I say minor prophet? Does he mean it's less of a prophet? Is, he, are there a, is there a difference between minor and major prophets? If so, what is the difference? So there might be a little bit of a, a, a difference between what our understanding is. So I'm going to try to encapsulate everything and kind of include everyone as we start this off. What I really want to do today is set the stage for what the message of Hosea really is. Because in order for us to really understand Hosea's message, which is God's message through the voice and through the writings of Hosea, is we have to understand the context of which it is written in. And so I'm going to try my best today to help you guys understand that context so that when we get further into the book, you will be able to fall back on that foundation of knowing where we started so that we can get, when we get to harder chapters like chapters 4 and 5 and 6, you'll be able to be like, oh, okay, now I understand what the setting is and what the content is. So it's very important for me to do that today. So one of the minor prophets in, in the Old Testament, and what do I mean when I say minor prophets? You may know, some of you may not know. What I mean by that is there's 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. There's a couple extra in, that are called major prophets. And the only reason they're called major and minor, it isn't because the major prophets are hardcore or they're better. And it isn't that the minor prophets are like, eh, they're whatever, they're just kind of uh, uh, unimportant. Well, no, no, that's not, that's not the, the, the thing here. Major prophets, they were just kind of labeled that way because they wrote more or there was more of a message. So we get the book of Jeremiah, we get the book of Isaiah, we get the book of Ezekiel, long books, over 30, 37 chapters in Ezekiel, 66 in Isaiah. We get these long books in the Old Testament of major prophets. Now the minor prophets, like Hosea, are relatively smaller in size. So that's why they're called minor prophets, not because their message is minor, but 
because the book size is smaller. So the editors back in the old days, they figured, well, we'll just categorize them together as, as minor prophets. And so you'll find the relatively smaller books towards the end of the Old Testament. You get the Hoseas, the Amos, the Jonas, the, the Micahs. They're, they're towards the back of the Old Testament because they're smaller in size and, and it just fits better within the, the biblical context. And later when we develop our classes of Old Testament, we'll be able to jump into detail exactly to understand what that means. But for now, suffice to say that minor and major prophets are just labeled that way because of the size of the book. Does everyone understand that? Pretty simple, right? So no difference in, in, in their power and in their influence, just the size of the book. That's pretty interesting. However, what I do want to note here is what, what's, what's really interesting is if you read the Hebrew Bible, which I, I doubt that anyone here does read the Hebrew Bible in Hebrew. Uh, I, I don't even read it in Hebrew. Uh, but the Hebrew Bible starts off with the book of Hosea as one of the first minor prophets. Now, that's very important because the Hebrew Bible follows the chronological order of the books. Now, this is very important for us to understand because in, the, in our Protestant Bibles, we just get in towards the back of our book of the Old Testament because of the size. But in the Hebrew Bible, they're all over the place. And you'll be like, why is this book here? Why is that book there? Well, it's following a chronology. And the good thing about this is that Hosea is the first book in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew Old Testament of the minor prophets. So we're going to have the privilege to study the first minor prophet in the, in the Hebrew Bible. So that's just kind of some, maybe for you, some boring stats. I don't want to get too much into them. I just kind of want to give you guys that overview of the book of Hosea. Maybe some information you may never have known or maybe never bothered to look up in your life. Now you know, okay? Secondly, we understand that this is a prophetic book. The book of Hosea is a prophetic book. Prophes prophetic books are, are divided in, in various types of sources, but it doesn't only mean that type of prophecy. When we hear prophecy, we think about, about like, oh, someone like pre-knowing uh, pre the future and kind of looking ahead in time and and and. and, and writing down what's going to happen. Oh, and, and this date, this is going to happen, and that date, that's going to happen. And, and it doesn't always mean that. What a prophetic book is usually, especially in this time frame that we're going to get into, is usually warnings. Sometimes it's a, it's a sound of judgment over a people. So prophecy doesn't just mean predicting the future. Prophetic books in this context, like Hosea, usually are those that are offering a warning or letting the people know that God's angry. So usually the prophets, they're, they're kind of angry books because they're letting the people know that God is upset. And we'll, we'll get into the reasons why God is ups, uh, upset when we get into the book, but that's just kind of the, the, the gender of, uh, of the book. Other than that, just so you know, Hosea was written chronologically first of the Minor Prophets, but it's in the time of the 8th century. Now, I don't know if you understand what I mean by 8th century, but if you go from B.C., before Christ, this way, it's in the 8th century. So here's the cross, or A.D., what, what people know as A.D., uh, the, the centuries that we're living in now. So here's A.D., and then Hosea's roughly over here, around 760 B.C., so it's a long time between that, that gap. So just, I just want to give you guys reference, okay? 
So I know that this is like, man, what is all this information about? Why, why am I? I'm just giving you guys a reference point so you understand the context. You understand where we're at in the story. Because the Bible is a hard book if we don't know how to study it. So for instance, Moses and Abraham are way back. And then we get to this kingdom of David. How many of you guys have heard of King David before? Okay, so King David is kind of like, everyone kind of knows King David, David and Goliath. You guys all know that. Well, that's 1,000 years B.C. So 250 years later is roughly the time of when Hosea is writing. Okay? Is that kind of okay? You understand that now? So that's the reference point where I want, where I want you guys to be in the time frame. And this book right here, is going to be a very crucial book for our understanding of what God is going to do with Israel. Not only Israel, but Judah. And we'll get into that a little bit more here. But now, let, what about, let's just read the book, okay? So that was like an introduction of reference, only reference. And now we're going to get into the meat of the book. And we're going to spend the rest of our time together on verse 1. We're only going to do... One verse today because there's so much information in this. So be ready, okay? Chapter 1 in the book of Hosea, verse what? Verse 1. And it says this, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So in that very first verse, you got a bunch of names, right? And usually what do we do when we get a bunch of names? We're just kind of like, oh, that's nice. Keep going. What else? And especially when we know about Hosea, because most of us, or at least if you've been in church for a while, you've kind of understood that the book of Hosea has this, this important story in it, correct? We know the story of the prophet Hosea and the prostitute Gomer. You guys kind of remember that story? Most of you guys know that story, right? Well, that's one of the most important parts, I would say, as an introduction to Hosea because it's in the, found in the first three chapters. And so most of us would kind of be like, well, let's get to that. I want to know about when the prophet has to marry a prostitute. That's interesting. I want to know what's going on there. So let's, let's, let's dig into that. Let's, let's dive into that context. Well, I know that's kind of where we want to go immediately. And don't worry, we will get there. We will talk about the prophet marrying a prostitute. And we will talk about why God told a prophet to marry a prostitute. And we will talk about why he kept bringing her back when she commits adultery against her husband. So we're going to get into all those details and, and you know, the kind of cheesema that we like, all the Hispanics, you know, the, the kind of nitty-gritty details of married life. We will get into that, but first, we have to attack verse 1. We can't just skip over it. It's in the Bible. That means it's the Word of God. That means it's important. And so verse 1 lays out huge amounts of context for us, huge amount of information that is helpful for our understanding in order for us to keep going in the book. Three aspects in, in verse 1 that we're going to get familiarized with. 
What's the first aspect I want you guys to understand? I want you to understand the theological aspect of this book at the beginning. What are the first words? The word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Whose word? Word of the Lord. Was it Hosea's word? Was it somebody else's word? Was it another king's word? Was it the people's word? It was the word of the Lord. And that's, that's right in your face at the beginning of the book. Everything in this book, what, what God wants you to know is that at the beginning is that it is the word of the Lord. This isn't a message made up or fabricated by somebody else. This is God's message. And we know that when God speaks, we have to listen. We have to pay attention. Because it's God's word. Everything that is written here, everything that is said here is God's word. Now, now you have to ask yourself from here on out, am I the type of person that will take this book and say, well, good morals, some good stuff in it, but I just, is, is it really God's word? I mean, human people had to write it. Some people had to kind of, uh, you know, there was mistakes, there's... What about all this other stuff? I mean, people can commit error. And, and you might have doubt as of this moment, but you have to ask yourself as of this moment on, am I going to believe that what is written here is truly the inspired, undefiled, authoritative, inerrant word of God? Or this could just be another good storybook for you for today. So that's a decision you're going to be faced with at, at the start. And that's kind of what Hosea is putting at the start, at the beginning. God is going to be talking to Israel, and they have to either accept that it's God's word, or just kind of be like, man, this guy's crazy, which some people did. So you have to put yourself there, and, and we don't have time to debate where the Bible, why the Bible was written, and who wrote the Bible, and how it was written. We don't have time for that, but you have to make that decision today, that you're sitting here in a church at a, at a day like this, you might have your Bible with you, and you have to really ask yourself, do I really believe this is God's Word? And if so, then you got to pay attention, because it says the Word of the Lord. So there's huge theological kind of, uh, aspects to this. There's huge theological um, information here. This is God's Word, not Hosea's Word, and we got to pay attention. The second aspect that we see in the first verse is the, the fact that he points out or he identifies a prophet. Who's the prophet? You just read the name that's right there at the beginning of the book. Hosea. Hosea is the prophet. He's the messenger. And this is very, very informative for us in, the, in a way because if we read other parts in the Old Testament, we realize that God works through a prophetic voice. There's people that lead the kingdom of Israel, the people of Israel, and usually God uses a mediator in the Old Testament. We have it in the beginning with Abraham and, and then Moses, and then we get a period of kings and judges, I mean judges and then kings, and, and then in between those kings we get prophetic voices, and some of the books in our Bible are prophetic. So God uses a prophet, a mouthpiece, someone that will speak, on his behalf. Is it because God can't do it by himself? 
Well, I don't think that's necessarily the case because I think God can do anything he wants. But this is another way of God identifying himself with his people. He uses people like you and me. You look at Hosea, and we don't have that much information about him, but it's like he could use anybody, and that's who God is. So God, in this verse, shows us who he's talking through, and it's this prophet Hosea. We don't know too much about him other than his, the name of his father, which we see is Bari. We will, later in the chapter, we will read and understand about his marriage, his married life. Like, that's kind of... Uh, that's kind of a, a, a flaw that, that we don't know anything else about the man, Hosea, but we know about his married life. Like That's kind of like, man, that's private, man. Leave that. I don't want anybody. You can know me on the outside, but to know your married life, that's kind of private. But anyways, it's out there. And we're going to know about that, his marriage with, with his wife. And then we're going to get to know who his wife is. It's at the beginning of the book, she's a prostitute. Then we're going to know the names of his kids. But in reality, that's basically it. We don't know what he works in, what his job is. Is he a blue-collar worker? Is he a white-collar worker? Is he, is he wealthy? Is he a peasant? What is he? We don't really know that because the book doesn't say it. Because the book is focused with the message. Sometimes the man doesn't really matter. The book is focused on the message, but we do get these in interesting understandings of Hosea because of his writing. If you read through it, I've read through this book several times in order to prepare for this, and you understand that he has some historical knowledge and some po political awareness. And he writes in such a way that we could understand that this guy may not be a peasant, but maybe in the upper middle class, middle class, or even upper class, but we have someone here that we don't not much about, and through this person, God is going to speak. Now let's get to the important part. In the verse, we have this phrase that comes up that says, in the days of. What does that mean, and why is that important? Well, God uses this message not only to identify his word to the people, not only to identify the messenger that will bring this word to his people, but he's bringing us to an understanding of when and where this message is told. If these names wouldn't have appeared in the first book, we wouldn't know what context Hosea is talking to. We wouldn't know who he's talking to. We wouldn't know why he's talking to them in the way that He's talking to them, especially with an angry message like that of the one that God provides here in the book. But these words are very important. In the days of, it signals a particular group of people. When we read this book, it's so easy for us to insert ourselves into the book, right? Like when we read about Hosea and Gomer and and, and, and how she cheats on her husband, and, and the husband is, is, is coming back to her, and you're like, man, that's just like me and you, man, you know, but, like, you, you're cheating on me. And, and like, we could so easily, like, put ourselves in the book, but we have to understand that God is writing in the days of, he's talking to and about a particular group of people. Secondly, in the days of, he's talking about a particular moment in time. 
You're putting a time reference there. And a particular place. So for the people he's talking to, he's talking to Israel. And partially some people in Judah. For the time he's talking in, well, we know that because of the names of these kings that existed in the 8th century, in the middle of the 8th century, we know the time frame. And that's going to play a huge, important factor as we keep digging into the book. And, the, and we know the place because Hosea talks about Samaria, and he also references Judah, and he describes Samaria in a way where, where someone that lives there describe, would describe the place. So Samaria is located in the northern kingdom of Israel. It's like somebody would, if, for those, how many of you guys live in Cicero? How many of you guys grew up in Cicero, like me? Like, how would you describe Cicero? You would be able to describe it by, oh, there's a bunch of Mexican restaurants on Cermak. There's, and you'd be able to describe it in a lot of different ways because you're from the hood. You're, you're part of Cicero. You're, you're here. You would know it. So somebody that wouldn't know this place wouldn't be able to describe it in detail like, like we would or the people of Cicero would. So we know he's in a place, Israel, the northern kingdom. And in the time... In the place, the time of, of, of 8th century and in the place of Israel. So, why does that matter? Like, can't we just keep moving forward, man? Like, let's get out of the... Let's, we, we know a bunch of these names. Some of us can't even pronounce these names. Let's just keep pushing forward. Well, we got to know, again, why God places these names here. And in order to fully understand this message of Hosea, we have to understand the covenant God did with the people of Israel. Where does Hosea live? In Israel. Who is he talking to primarily? The Israelite people and some of Judah. And you'll say, well, why a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom? Well, 300 years before, the kingdom was divided by the sons of Solomon. And that's a whole different story, but right now we have two kingdoms because of idol worship and because of disobedience to God. So we're in two different kingdoms right now. But this covenant kind of outlines the book for us. In order for us to know the book, then we got to know why the book is written in such a way by understanding the covenant it violates. So for instance, if this happens all the time in relationships. If, if you're in a bad relationship, or you're in a relationship where, some, where one of the person is abusive and, and yells at you and, and says all these things about you, and, and you go seek counseling, and there's typically always one side of the story, right? The abusive person kind of always jumps out first and says, no, well, it's because she doesn't understand or he doesn't understand, blah, blah, blah. And so the counselor will kind of always get one side of the story without hearing the other side. And when we hear the other side, then we could be like, oh, okay, then we could put two and two together. This guy is this way, or this girl is this way, abusive, uh, uh, does, uh, says a lot of evil things, says a lot of bad things to the person, abuses them with their words, because they're often drunk, they do drugs, they're, they're doing other things with their friends and stuff. And so you kind of get the backstory of it, and then you understand why the relationship is the way it is, Right? It's like we get one side of the story, and then we get the other side of the story, and they're like, oh, 
Now it makes sense. That's why she wants to leave you. That's why he wants to leave you, because of what you've been doing or because of how you've been acting. And so in a way, when we read this book, and if we don't know the context or we don't know the, what happened beforehand, then we would say, why is God upset? As a matter of fact, when you go home today, try to read through the first, even the first 11 chapters of Hosea. And then you'll realize, why is God so, why is God calling these people their, these bad names? Like, you're going to realize that God calls Israel some really bad names. And you'll be like, why, are you mad? Are you upset, God? Well, we have to understand why he's upset. So this is outlined for us because there is a previous covenant. You got to remember that Israel is God's people. Do you guys remember that? From the beginning of time, from Abraham and, and establishing a covenant with Abraham, and then, and then establishing another covenant with Moses, this is God's people. God chose them. Insignificant group of people, God chose to love them and bring them out of slavery. This is the people God chose to be with and be their God. And it's these people that break the covenant with God. So the message that we get in Hosea is that a message of doom. It's like gloom and doom. And there's so much cursing going on over these people in the message of Hosea. But there's also some messages of blessing, as you'll read in chapter 11 and chapter 14, and in part of chapter 2. There's some good stuff, but there's more bad stuff going on. And the Lord is going to punish the group of people because of what they've done to separate themselves from the law. The people have broken the law with God, and because they broke the law with God, there was repercussions for it. And now, in this time, in Hosea's time, God is calling Hosea to let the people know, my wrath is on its way. My wrath is coming. So God's message here is kind of negative, but there is a long-term hope for a blessing. But we find first that the, that the message of doom is far more immediate, and that's why this prophet is here. So I want to read with you guys. Just, just open up your Bible. Go, go back a little bit to, to Deuteronomy. We're not going to read the entire thing, but I'm going to just point out some very important things that, that you have to know. What is this law they violated? What is this covenant they have violated? Well, in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we read in chapter, in verse 20, that it says, that it, it, it brings up the story of, of Israel and Pharaoh. And it says in verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. What's going on here? God is reminding this particular group of people in Deuteronomy, which is another generation after the first people exited Egypt. And he's talking to them specifically, remember that I brought you out of Egypt. For what? To be my inheritance. Again, who is he talking to? Israel. He's talking to Israel. And God is reminding Israel, I've taken you out of slavery. You were slaves. You understand that? You were, 
miserable people in the furnace of Egypt. Then he goes on to say, in verses, look at verses 23 and 24. Take care lest you forget the covenant. Lest you forget what? Say it with me. Lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So here, immediately, the people of God know the nature and the character of God. And is God saying, I am a jealous, vengeful God just because I feel like it? No, God is saying, remember. What is he saying? Say it in that voice. Remember the covenant of God. Keep that here. And later, the Moses will write, put, write it in your heart. Remember the covenant. First of all, remember that I brought you out of Egypt being enslaved. I could have just left you guys there. And then remember the covenant that you did with Moses. We don't have time to go there, but when Moses brings the tablets and the, the stone tablets before the people, all the people said, we will do this. We will commit ourselves to this. We will swear before that we will follow these commandments. And as we know, they didn't. But, but here, God is saying to Israel, warning Israel, remember, remember, remember. And if you don't remember, what's going to happen? Look at verses 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. Ouch. Is God going to do that just because he wants to? Why is God going to do that? Talk to me, people. Why is God going to do that? Why is God going to utterly destroy his people? If, what does he say? If you make carved images. Is he going to get mad at statues? No. He's going to get mad at the fact that we're going to substitute the worship to God to worship false idols. And when you do that, God says, I will utterly punish you. Is that kind of, that's clear, right? Like you and I get that, right? That's clear. Or am I the only one that thinks it's clear? It's fairly clear. The law and the stipulations of the covenant are fairly clear. I will destroy you. And then in verse 27 says, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. God's going to take you out, put you away. But then, look at what the covenant says. Verse 29. But from there, 
from there. Where, where is he talking about? Well, if you go back to verse 28, and there you will serve gods of wood and stone, that the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. At that place of idol worship, wherever you go to worship idols, from there in verse 29 he says, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Verse 30, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. Say with me, merciful. Merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that, that he swore to them. Now we get all this anger at the beginning, but at the end of the day, what is God saying? I am merciful. What did we sing today? You, um, our sins, they are many. And how many of us could confess to that? And that we're sinners. But God is merciful. But that blessing, my friends, doesn't overpower the fact that they disobeyed God. And if they disobey God, consequences are expected to occur. Even though there is hope for a blessing, the moment of disobedience, that, that, and that moment of disobedience produces consequences that the people will have to face. 1,500 years later, Israel is in this moment where Hosea is prophesying this, these exact words to them. He is about to describe in 14 chapters their abuse of the covenant of God. They have abandoned God. What did God say? Remember, remember, do not forget. And these people have Forgotten. I love what the commentary I wrote, I read, said. It is important to understand that the promise that the promise sections do not hold hope for an avoidance of divine wrath. What he's saying is, this beautiful promise of mercy doesn't mean they're not going to get judgment. But follow Deuteronomy four and expecting blessing only after the curses of the covenant have been unleashed. The blessings are thus always eventual, while the curses are immediate. There is hope at the end of the tunnel, but there's judgment now. Sometimes you ask yourself, God, why am I going through this? Why do I have to put up with this stuff? You have to ask yourself, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten your God. Because the very sins that Israel commits are some of the very sins we commit by substituting our worship to God to worship a false God. And there are many false gods out there. We have them all. It's our money, our finance, our, our, our sex drive, our, 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 our careers. They're out there, my friends. And we fall captive to them. 
when we substitute our worship for God to the worship of others. And why are we going through the things that we're going through? Because God is hateful? No. Because God is true to his word. But the wonderful thing is, his mercy is at the end. So it's kind of like if you're a parent, you know how it is when you spank your son or your daughter. Ah, it kills you, doesn't it? It kills you when you yell at them and say, why do you do it? And they look at you and they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Dad. And the bugs are coming out and they're crying. And, and you just go all out vengeance on them. And then once you let it all out, then you realize, dang, I messed up. I, I went too hard on them. And you go back to the room and you give them a hug. And I'm sorry I yelled at you. But, but just listen, <laughs> you know, be, be a good kid, man. It, it's kind of like that. God, like, boom, comes down and then he remembers. God says, I will remember the covenant I made with your fathers. See, we forget. God never forgets. We abandon God. God never abandons us. It would be different if God just left us. If we're in our evil ways, just keep doing your evil ways. And God could just be like, I forget about you. Later. I'm going to go find somebody else. God doesn't do that. God commits himself by his discipline and by his judgment. He commits himself to us because then the promise of restoration and mercy are at the end of the tunnel. So this historical context that we find ourselves in is very important. This is what's going on. This is a, temp this is a spiritual temperature of, of the time of Hosea. Now look at, look at the historical context because it goes even deeper into this. These names are important. And in these five minutes, I'm going to just introduce you maybe to the one of the first names and then next week we could keep going at the rest of the names. One of the first names he mentions in this list is Uzziah. In the days of Uzziah. If we understand these names and the chronology that they imply, it brings us to a moment in time in Israel's history where we find a very prosperous Israel and Judah. As a matter of fact, in this moment where we'll read the, the last name he mentions, Jeroboam II and, and Uzziah, they, they kind of team up and they kind of have a little bit of peace for about 50 years in both kingdoms. So they're, they're at the height of prosperity. Israel, at this moment, is doing okay. Make Israel great again. It's happening. It's, it's there. They're doing good. And this happens because uh, Jeroboam, the second's father, uh, Johash, he's the one that does three military defeats to the, to the Syrians and kind of liberates the people of Israel from that oppression, and now they're kind of free. And now his son, Jeroboam II, along with the other king in, in the south, Uzziah, they come together and they kind of just make some peace for just a couple of years. This, this wonderful peacetime of Israel brings about a glorious architectural splendor throughout the kingdom. They start building things. Uh, they have material luxury. I'm talking about money. They, they're, they're, the economy is doing great. Jobs are growing. Everything is prosperous. They actually uh, make an abundance of agriculture. So that's like the jobs that are occurring in the kingdom. There's, there's plenty. There, this is a very 
prosperous time for the kingdom. It reminds me of back in 06, 07, where the banks were just giving out money to anybody. Literally. I remember applying for a loan. I didn't, I didn't have a lot of job history. I didn't have any credit. And the banks were like giving me money. Here, take $500,000 and get in debt and, buy a, and buy, go buy a building. And everyone was like, yeah, what's up? And then a couple years later, everyone was like, oh, my God, I can't pay for it. I can't pay for it. Well, that's kind of the, the way the kingdom was established right here. It was prosperous. Money's all over the place. But with prosperity comes danger. There, prosperity is perilous. It's dangerous. When everything is going good, be careful. And, and, and here's the mercy of God. Because as Israel prospers, and as Israel is at the height, at the golden age of prosperity, what does God do? God sends them a prophet. And God sends them another book that we'll read later on, which is contemporary. They're functioning at the same time. Hosea is, is, is prophesying. But God also sends Amos. You guys remember the prophet Amos? Amos is also prophesying from the south. And he's sending word over to Israel in the north. And Amos is warning them to stop being evil, to stop being violent, to stop being oppressive, to stop being unjust, to stop indulging themselves in their political policies because it's evil. And he sends warning to Israel. But Israel did not listen. So that is, my friend, at this moment, we're going to stop right here, but I'm going to just, I want to stop because I want you to realize what this message is going to accomplish and the people it's going to accomplish it with. We have a people here that are living it up. We have a context in Hosea where people are, you know, you're not talking to a, a poor people like, oh my God, we, we don't have anything. No, you're talking to people that are wealthy. Talking to people that, that got jobs, that got careers. Can you imagine, imagine preaching to a, a people that are good? Like, I don't need any of this. I, I'm good. I'm, I have my job. I have my money. I have my, my vineyards. I have my agriculture. I have it all set up. Why do I need to listen to this little prophet that comes from God? So all of this stuff is about to take place at that very moment. And when we read these names, don't just skip through them. Pay attention to what these names mean because it shows you the time and place and the setting for the message that will take place. When there is prosperity in the land, there is a temptation to feel that you've accomplished the good in your life and you don't need God. But then there's moments where God sends a voice like God sent a prophetic voice in Amos. And he warns them that in their prosperity, they are doing evil. They are falling into sin. They're oppressing the people. And what prosperity often does, puts your fingers in your ears and says, I can't hear anything. I can't hear you. And it just makes you keep going in your own way. God warns. It's up to us to listen. And if we don't listen, then Hosea is going to come in and 
bring down God's wrath. So prepare yourselves for next week as we dig deeper into the book of Hosea. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Father, may we learn from these people that were prospering and had many things and had many things going for them in their lives, but they were being disobedient to you. Father, let us wake up from our stupor at this very moment and realize we have forgotten. If there are those that are out here who have forgotten the God of the covenant, the God that has made a, a covenant with them, God that's been with them since their youth, that we, that we may come running back. And though that those trials and struggles, that the wrath of God may come upon us at the moment, we will also be embraced by your mercy. I pray for everybody here today, Father, that they can turn from evil and seek your face. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, y'all. So I'll see you guys next week.